Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Last Saturday, the college football world spun off its axis as Michigan beat Ohio State and Cincinnati broke into the college football playoff top four. Michigan's victory was the first in the Jim Harbaugh era and launched the Wolverines into the Big Ten championship game. It also secured the future of Jim Harbaugh, a true Michigan man. Just how thin was the ice Harbaugh was standing on prior to Saturday? And how did the University of Michigan's president, Mark Schlissel, find himself on the way out a year earlier than his contract required? I visit today with a terrific reporter who knows the Michigan political world and regularly reports on the ins and outs of higher education and athletics, David Jesse. David is a reporter for the Detroit Free Press. He has covered higher education in Michigan for more than a decade. He has written extensively on sexual assault on college campuses, including at Michigan State and the University of Michigan, higher ed finance, college affordability, and on small colleges that are actually growing their enrollment. He also co-authored a great piece on how meal money is spent for men and women in the Big Ten and the MAC conferences, and you'll be so surprised. David was a 2021 Spencer Fellow in Education Reporting at the Columbia University School of Journalism. He was also the Education Writers Association top education reporter in the nation in 2018. David, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you back with us. Thanks for having me back. Well, first I have to ask, like so many millions of people who watched the Michigan-Ohio State game on Saturday, you have the great good fortune of living near Ann Arbor. What's it been like for the last five or six days? I think people are still kind of pinching themselves. <laughs> you know, they were they were so excited and so so thrilled about getting that win. I think most people kind of thought it was possible, but didn't really believe until the, the final uh, the final horn had sounded, and I think that's why you saw the field storm and just such uh, incredible scenes of uh, a jubilation. Of course, it was nice too. There was in the snow, and you know, it just was a, a yeah, just a great visual, right, of everything going on, going on. And it it seemed like everything went right for Michigan that day for all the trials and tribulations that Jim Harbaugh has had with trying to beat Ohio State, which ultimately is. For some would say the most important game for Michigan. Other people would say Michigan State is the most important game for Michigan. But to get them into the position of possibly being in the in a college football playoff is massive. Yeah, it's stunning when you consider that last year at this time, I was calling all my sources to figure out if Jim Harbaugh still had a job. Right, right. <laughs> you know, right. But it wasn't. And the, the conventional wisdom was that he didn't. It just was a matter of time before they lowered the boom on him. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Ward Manuel stuck with him, did some creative things with his contract, obviously. And, you know, it paid off for him. So one of the questions I really wanted to talk to you about is the Michigan Board of Trustees. So let's kind of go through the dynamics, not only of the of the Mark Schissel, the President Mark Schissel discussion, which we'll talk about, but also mm -hmm. your sense of just reading the tea leaves about Jim Harbaugh's transition in the last year and why you think they gave them gave him more rope, if you will. I think they gave him more rope because of his past and his ties here. I mean, let's not forget that for a long time, Jim Harbaugh was the name whenever there was an opening here, right. right? Rich Rodriguez was here. You know, they were talking about, well, why didn't we have Jim Harbaugh? Brady Hoke was here. Why didn't we have Jim Harbaugh? 
you know, and you go back, I was, I was nine or 10 years old when he famously guaranteed victory over Ohio state in a game. And when he was the quarterback and, uh, and came through, right. So he has that past. And I think he got that. They're willing to give that extra rope in sort of like a last shot, like prove it. Um, this is it. If you do it, that's great. We're all happy. But if you, but if you don't make it, we're all out and we'll, we'll go our, our separate ways. I do think that last year at this time, there were members of that board who secretly in their private hearts were hoping that he would get an NFL offer and they could all just sort of part ways kind of nicely. They could talk about what a great guy he was and, and, and move on. That didn't work out. It seems to have worked out well for him this year. So my sense of, of kind of listening to the to the uh, couple of trustees that I know and others on campus is that it, it seemed like he was doing everything right but winning. <laughs> and that's that's that they were just kind of hoping, can you get over that hump? We give you everything you need. Can you get over that hump? And Saturday was like a resounding. Yes, I can do that. It was. And then it was the, that release of all that that anxiety. You know, I mean, I think all the way through that game fans were still like, oh, how's he going to blow it? How's he going to blow it? How's he going to blow it? We're going to drop this. And to finally make it and get the win, get all the way through, get the win, you know, was a, was a huge deal. And really now these next couple of weeks in the, you know, Saturday night in the uh, Big Ten Conference Championship, and then if they make it in the playoff, you know, this is house money that they're, that both he and, and they are playing, playing with. Well, it was quite an accomplishment. Of course, as you well know, there's, it's been quite a year of upheaval inside the Michigan region's uh, meetings. And you've been paying attention to the dynamics of the surprise decision to renegotiate the current president, Mark Schissel's contract so that it ends earlier than expected. And yet he seems to be walking away quite happy and quite, uh, quite well compensated. Yeah, there's no doubt he worked out quite a, quite a good deal for him good deal for himself. You know, over the last several years, there's been sort of a growing frustration by members of the board about Mark Schlissel's performance as president. Um, not in the academic area, but more in dealing with some of the bigger issues, um, particularly sexual assault. Obviously, Martin Filbert, who um, Mark Schlissel hired to be his provost, right, comes out that that a former regent had even warned the president, hey, look at, you need to look, or had warned uh, President Schlissel, hey, look at, you need to look more closely at, uh, at Martin Filbert. There's some bad stuff in, in there and he didn't. There were some people who submitted some anonymous comments on reviews that uh, President Schlissel admits he'd never read and saw, you know, never saw. So there was frustration with the handling of that. There was frustration with the handling of the Robert Anderson case, which happened the doctor who has sexually assaulted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of, of U of M athletes over the years. Obviously, that didn't happen on his watch, but certainly the the run up, the fallout of that has been going on. Now he has um, John Vaughn, who's a former uh, prominent football player, right, was a running back, was an NFL player. He's been camped in front of the president's house now for for 50 some days, you know, living in a tent. He's there 24 seven. You know, so all that sort of was bubbling. And then we hit this, this chapter with the, what was called the Detroit Center for Innovation, where um, the 
the university and Stephen Ross, who is their biggest donor, the owner of the Dolphins, the developer of Hudson Yards, uh, you know, big real estate guy, and Dan Gilbert, who in Detroit owns most of all downtown, two massive people, were going to build this downtown Detroit campus um, for the university. Much fanfare when it was announced, then it went real quiet, and then suddenly the plug was pulled and it came out that... Um, that President Schlissel was negotiating without informing the board with Christopher Illich's, uh, another big developer here in Detroit's uh, company. It got complicated. Denise Illich at the time was the chairman, chairwoman of the board. Christopher Illich's, uh, her brother, there's some estrangement there. So that she's not directly involved in the day-to-day -day running of the of the company that would have developed it, but still she would, some proceeds, but she didn't know about it, even to recruit herself. And so just all... Kind of, kind of blew up, and then you had these couple months of, of them really trying to get, get President Schlissel to leave, and they never quite got on, got to the point where they had enough votes to force him out, right? Which is what it comes down to. But they had enough votes, you know. They it was a, it was pretty much a four-four tie, depending on how who talked to a couple board members last. And as you know, if you got four board members, you got half the board against you, you might be able to keep your job, but it's sure going to be hard for you to get anything done. Right. Um, right. And so, and then that also, so they worked out this this agreement. President Social had leverage then, you know, that he knew they couldn't fire him, um, but they they wanted him gone, and so he worked out this 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 great deal with lots of lots of after uh, after presidency perks that we just don't normally see. Right, right. And, and to, for uh, listeners, I've had uh, Denise Illich on the podcast before while she was chair of the Regents. And, um, you know, she's a passionate um, person about Detroit, about Michigan, about higher education, certainly cares for all of that. But one of the things that's really uh, unique about the Michigan Regents um, uh, makeup is that they're all elected positions from citizens of the state of Michigan. And what do you, what's your take on that dynamic as how it played in? So they're all politicians, right? Um, you know, and so there's jockeying for, for position, for power, for parties. Um, you know, you had a couple of Republican, the Republican member, the two Republican members who were standing up for President Schlissel, but you had a couple of Democrats who were as well. And there was some some inter-democratic party stuff that came in between some younger members of the Democratic Party, including uh, Jordan Acker, who's a young um, a young regent, Mark Bernstein, who's a little bit older of a regent, not old, but both prominent lawyers around around Detroit and Michigan. And so there was all that played in. And you know these people have to run. You know they're gonna they have to be renominated by the by the base of the of the Democratic or Republican Party, and then they have to put their name on the on the ballot. It creates some 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 weird dynamics. And if voters can't can't get necessarily to a president if they're dissatisfied with them, they can vote the board out. We saw this in Michigan State right after Larry Nassar. Right. A number of board members either chose not to run because they knew they were going to lose, or they actually got voted out. Even Brian Moslem, who was the most reform-minded um, Michigan State a board member, very prominent in his calls for reform at Michigan State after the Larry Nassar stuff, voters voted him out, you know, just because he he was sort of tainted. And so there's, you know, they're worried about some of their political future and being tied to the president. And they want to be around to pick the next president. And then what does that 
what do you, how does that shape the direction of the university? Obviously in these times and debates about what universities should be teaching and not teaching, all that, all that matters to the, to the voters here in Michigan. As a journalist who's, who's looking, uh, I, I suppose, dispassionately on higher education in Michigan, is this a good system? I mean, to have uh, citizens elect the regents of universities? You know, I, I struggle with this because we have both here in Michigan, right? We have, we have th the three big universities, Wayne State, which you and I talked about way back when, back that, when? Ran, that ran into problems. Wayne State, Michigan State, and the University of Michigan all are directly elected. Everybody else is appointed by the governor. The problem with appointed by the governor is, you know, that can be a very cronyism type of, of position. There's no direct accountability to the voters, right? If you don't like what Eastern Michigan or Central Michigan or Oakland is doing, you can't put people back in. On the other hand, those people aren't running for election, right? They're not politicians themselves, although several are. So I don't know. I, I think the bigger problem in Michigan with the boards is there's no overarching, no centralization. And so each university is out for themselves. And as we as we get into this era of shrinking demographics in the state, that, you know, now instead of thinking about, do we have too many nursing programs? Do we all need to have a master's in electronic gaming, you know, um, or should we have one here and one one there? Um, you know, everyone's out for them, out for themselves. And so I think that might be the bigger issue here in, in Michigan when it comes to, to board governance. Obviously, we know that those big boards uh, run into problems too, but that's kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really problematic and it lends itself, I think, to the situation. And I just heard this rumor the other day, I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about it, about Grand Valley thinking about moving to division one. And so you're looking at, you know, state resources going to try to prop up these institutions that think Division I athletics is sort of a badge of honor, if you will, allow them to stand out amongst the crowd. And yet, rather than looking at duplicating services and majors, we're looking at just trying to pour more money into it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, right. So that's long been an issue at the regionals. Eastern Michigan here, has, this has been a battle between the faculty of Eastern Michigan and the administration of Eastern Michigan for a long time. Eastern's a division one school, football and basketball. They, they draw a little bit better now at football, but still they don't draw. There's never, my boys and I like to go to Eastern, Eastern games. There's never a full house there. Um, you know, so, but they spend 25, 26, $27 million on the, you know, into the athletic program from the general fund, just so they can make it into that division one, you know, but again, there's no coordination. There's no, how many division one, um, how many division one universities does the state of Michigan really need, you know, right. We, do you need five? Do you need six? Do you need 12? Do you need you know, just three, you know, and so there, but there's no real coordination for that. Again, everyone's scratching for their own dollars. Everyone's scratching for their own students, you know, so administrators start to think, well, we've had success at a lower level, like Grand Valley's football team has been very successful, national champions a number of times in the playoffs, you know, and they start thinking, well, you know, it might be nice if we went up to division, went up to division one, we got to be at least as good as Eastern, and we probably can maybe occasionally catch lightning in the bottle like Western does, and and have a have a good a good season. So yeah, it's a it's a tough thing.
it's a really tough thing. And if you have regents who are sort of appointed in different ways and have different agendas, it's really hard to harness all that energy and go one direction, I would think. It, it is, right? And, you know, and you got some who are running for election and you got some who are just making sure that they keep the governor happy. <laughs> That's true. Um, I want to continue with my big 10 questions, then we'll shift to some of the other schools you've been focusing on. But Mel Tucker's contract, the, the relatively new <laughs> head football coach at Michigan State, with Michigan State still paying off the Larry Nasser debt, which if you'll remind our, our listeners how much that is about, how do they afford this contract? It's a good question. Well, the the debt's in the, and I, I should have looked it up, The it's in the $500 million. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge settlement they had to have with the Larry Nasser um, victims, uh, an amount that might soon be topped by the University of Michigan, yes. which yeah. is being sued over Robert Anderson. So here's how Michigan State was able to afford that contract, which now seems just after the news of the last week in the contracts <laughs> that are... I'm waiting for my, I'm waiting, you know, Karen, I keep waiting for my, my contract to show up. Yeah, when it, it hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't shown up. No, so what they did, and this is kind of interesting, they went out and they actually just went to two of their major boosters and said, hey, we want to keep him, but we don't have the money to do it. Can you help? And so the booster said, yep, tell us how much and we'll write the check. And so they did. They just, they're, they're writing the check, you know, I mean, obviously it will be spread out over years and however the tax advantage works, but they're covering the bulk of the, the bulk of the cost. And so that's how the university was able to come up with this 10 year, $95 million dollar contract is the, the, the two prominent boosters. Um, they wanted to make it happen. And the university said, well, if you're going to foot the bill, we're in. Well, wow. it's, it's an amazing dynamic, and some of it's coming off of a pandemic, some of it's coming off the, the fastest rising stock market in decades, and people in certain brackets feel flush with money, and they want to put their money with what they care about, I guess. Yeah, you know, and I mean, he's had a good season. Um, again, we talked about Jim Harbaugh, unexpected. Certainly no one expected this out of, out of Michigan State, especially with the number of transfer players he brought in and he's had a great season it certainly didn't uh, hurt his negotiating power the LSU was rumored to be interested in him and you know that Michigan State looked around the other thing you have to remember is the last prominent coach that was at Michigan State that was gonna gonna jump um, was Nick Saban right and Michigan State didn't pony up then and he left and Saban would have stayed, he wouldn't have stayed forever, but he probably would have stayed a, a few more years if they had, if they had ponied up some money and they were bound to determine that that would not happen yeah. with Mel Tucker. Fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. You know? Yep, exactly. <laughs> so um, you and I, uh, you asked me to look over some data that you collected uh, between uh, the meal monies between men's and women's teams in the big 10 and in the Mac so two division one conferences, but they might as well be light years apart in terms of so many things. Give us a sense of what your analysis was, why you tried to do it and what you learned. Well, so we wanted to look at the disparities between male athletes and female athletes in big time sports. And like you said, we have the big 10 and we have the Mac. And so what we did is we looked at a, some spending that the universities do on, on 
on-campus meals. So these are these are things after practice, they're special treats, they're the energy bars. And we wanted to know where, how are they spending them, that money? And, you know, there's obviously a difference between a Mac school and a Big Ten school. The Big Ten schools spent about $37 million on these meals. And this, we should say, is in addition to your normal meal plan, right? You know, so right. with your scholarship, you either get get a stipend or you get a get a meal plan, right? This is in, in addition to that. And so this, this is separate from uh, travel and meals. Right, this is completely yeah. separate, right? So okay. these are, which we thought was interesting because they're completely, they're completely mm -hmm. optional, right? You're not gonna go hungry if you don't have these meals, if you don't have these right. meals, okay. right? You know, whereas if you're on the road, right? You, they, you gotta have dinner. Right. And so, right. and so the Big Ten spent about 37 million. Uh, the Mac spent about $3 million. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's the size of the universities. But what was more interesting is when you broke it down by gender and the disparity between gender held both in the Big Ten and in the Mac, the, the majority, I mean, we're talking about 80% within each team's spent on, on specific teams is going to male athletes. And you can think about that and you can think, well, okay, that might make sense because football teams are all male and they're big. But if you break it down even further and you look at basketball teams, right? There's men's basketball teams, women's basketball teams. They're about the same size of roster, about the same size of coaches. They're as equal as you can get in terms of numbers. The disparity shows up even there. They get more at on the men's team than the women's team. For example, East, let's talk examples. Eastern Michigan, their women's basketball team was around around the holidays, around Thanksgiving, they were gonna have a Thanksgiving meal. And so the school went to Honey Baked Ham and bought a large quarter ham for them, about 88 bucks, right? Nice okay. thing to do for the team, right? You have a nice, a nice holiday dinner, right? So a couple of months later, two months later, the school spent $397 to buy pink lemonade organic energy chews for the men's basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> for what one season one for weekend? One, yeah, i don't know it's 25 cases i tried oh. to talk my bosses into letting me expense 25 <laughs> cases of right. organic juice to see how much energy oh, choose to see how much he didn't go he didn't go for that um no. <laughs> but that just sort of shows that disparity or you know the men's team at eastern they had uh pre-game meals breakfast um, before the majority of their games, and we're talking, you know, eggs and bagels and pancakes and everything you would think that an athlete would need. And they had that, I think, 10 of 12 home games. The women had it like twice the entire, the entire year. So again, it's just that disparity. And that holds true at just about every Big Ten school and about just about every Mac school. The dollar amounts are different, um, but that's, that's the way they go. They treat the, the men's teams with lavish spreads and the women's teams are kind of, you know, they don't, they, they just don't get that resource. And again, it's just an example of, of the disparity that exists. We know going back to the NCAA tournament, right? This last spring, there was lots of stuff on social media about the, the women's weight rooms that really weren't nothing. And the, and the buffets. In the buffets yeah. that were just this plastic film, you know, it was, it, you watch the, the, the videos the players were posting of their meals. And then you go to the men's and they got these huge buffet trays full of steaks, and, yeah. you know, yeah. more than they could possibly eat. And so it's just another example of how still in 2021, that 
disparity between the two um, exists. I thought it was a fascinating analysis. And then to also compare it to the Mac, because you, you'd think to yourself, okay, well, maybe they're, they're a little less, a lot less resourced, but maybe they'll do it more equitably. But in some ways, this is old patterns. We always have fed football and primarily men's basketball more because supposedly they make money. Is that your assumption in this? Yeah, I mean that's that's basically what's going on. Those are the those are the profit those are the profit sports, and so we don't have you know we just don't have that. But you know, for women's, but you know, when you look at the when you look at the women's basketball, I mean, I'm looking at the at the numbers right now. So Western Michigan spent almost eleven thousand dollars on men's basketball meals and two thousand five hundred dollars on women's basketball. Right, you know, so it just holds up. Ohio University spent fifty-seven thousand on men's basketball and ten thousand on women's on women's basketball. And again, these aren't meals that you have to have, right? right. There's still right. meal plans. There's still the stipend that you get if you're not having a meal plan, right? These are you're not on the road. You're at home. It's after practice. It's before practice. It's a special night out. Those types of things. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also aware that in sports like basketball, oftentimes, in addition to all of that, they also get a per diem. Right. So, you know, it could be a $75 a day or $50 a day per diem cash that's handed to, to them. So they are not hungry. That, that, right. it, that is clearly the issue. But the issue is, what about the, the soccer teams or what about the swimming teams? Yeah, and if you go down to the soccer and the swimming team, if you look in the reports these schools are filing to the NCAA, they're not spending anything. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. So what does that say holistically about the athlete experience? And one of the conversations I'm having with folks who are senior leaders and, and presidents and even trustees is saying, how do we ensure that all of our athletes are getting an equitable experience? And I think meals is a really fair way to look at it. And that's why I thought I was really pleased that you did that analysis. So uh, thank you for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Is there some, some way that they can have, you know, some sort of centralized training table that all athletes get to that's all equal you know that everybody can can you split those 25 boxes of uh, energy chews across <laughs> more than just the basketball team and maybe some of the staff as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well let's shift a little bit to some of the smaller colleges not just in michigan but you've been kind of i think you took a couple road trips in the last few months as well and one of the most interesting articles that I thought you wrote was about small conservative Christian colleges and their remarkable retention rates, especially at a time when we've undergone a pandemic. What were your takeaways from that? Yeah, so it was interesting. I've been spending the last year, year and a half, looking at small liberal arts schools across the across the Midwest. They're under a tremendous amount of financial pressure. Um, and so I wanted to see what was going on with them. And so I've been in Illinois and I've been in, I've been all over the place looking at the, at these schools. And what you found is um, that there's a small niche of these schools that is really, really growing a, a little bit bigger group that's growing. And then a group that's, that's falling down. And what we found is it's the, the group of schools that is really growing are the super conservative traditional Christian schools. Most small liberal arts colleges were founded by some religious denomination. The Methodists moved in, settled an area, they built a college. The, you know, on the west side of Michigan, you know, the Dutch came in and the reformed churches, you know, built a college. And so you, you have a bunch of those. And so there are, there are a bunch of schools that in the 1920s on have, have 
walked completely away from their from the traditional beliefs right and that group of schools is the group that has actually been struggling the most and so those are the schools like um like Albion or Alma here in in, in Michigan and there's others like them across then you have a group of schools that is trying to be Christian but it's like a a bigger tent uh, Christianity, right? So you don't have to be Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or Reformed. You just have to kind of agree to a general Christian philosophy, kind of the key concepts of the faith that everybody sort of agrees on. And those schools have been growing. I think they're somewhere in the in the three percent range. Um, yeah. Over the last over the last decade, which you know, when you look at the um, the landscape of higher education, these small schools, three percent growth is is great. I would say is that consistently every year. Consistently like every year, yep. And so, right there, this great growth rate. Then you have so, but that, those are kind of the bigger tent. And so you have some places like Hope College here in in Michigan, formed by the the Reformed Church in America, um, long filled with students coming out of that church, they now have more Catholics on campus than they have reformed students on campus. Hmm. Um, but they're, and they're fine with that. It's just a broader, they talk about God. They have a daily, they have a three time a week chapel service, but it's completely voluntary. You can go if you want. It's, you know, I, I went and sat in a service and I could have been in a Baptist church. I could have been in a Methodist church. I could have been in a Catholic, right? The, the message was just was it was kind of that interdenominational stuff. Then you have this group of of schools that has stayed completely with their denomination, with the most conservative denominations, very traditional sets of beliefs. And this group is up about 8% on average over the last decade. Tremendous growth. They're keeping students and in, in they're, they're getting new students in. These are the schools where you have to sign covenants that you agree with them. You have to sign covenants that say you're not going to drink, you're not going to have premarital sex, that you're against homosexuality, that you're pro-life, right? The very traditional beliefs. And these schools are, are flourishing. Hmm. The overall numbers aren't huge because they're small schools, 1,000, 1,500 schools, student schools. But they're growing and growing as as parents and as students look for places that match their beliefs in a in a in a, a belief that the big secular universities and even some of these other smaller liberal arts schools just won't let them practice their faith. They don't feel welcome at those kinds of institutions. Yeah, they don't feel welcome, and so they have a step. They have established this niche, right? And so they market to this niche. They're very dis. When you talk to when I talk to college presidents, right, about enrollment issues all the time, they're talking about how can we define ourselves? Right. right. What are we? What's what's Jesse University all about? And why does someone want to come to Jesse University? Well, we're the only school that's all about left-handers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so they're looking for that, they're looking for that, for that, for that niche. And that's what's going on with these these small Christian conservative schools and, and they're flourishing. You see them all over the, perhaps the best known and it's not small is Liberty yes. University, right? Who has, who has just tremendous growth has grown way beyond. Yes. Um, and these schools aren't that big, but they're following that same path. And it's interesting. You can trace a school like Cedarville university in Ohio. It was very conservative. It went liberalized where it kind of grew in its, um, 
in its definition of Christianity, enrollment went down. It shrunk back into a more traditional definition of Christianity and of faith, and its enrollment went back up. It's fascinating. And I'm wondering if in your analysis, are there takeaways that non-conservative liberal arts schools can take away from this uh, to maybe strengthen their own enrollment? I think, again, it's this, it's this, who are we and why should we go here? And we're not going to try, you're not necessarily trying to be something to everybody or everything to everybody, but what makes your place, your college worth coming to? Yeah. What niche do you fill? Um, you know, and so are you all in on a particular academic program? Are you all in on a particular sport? Are you all in on a, a philosophy of serving in the community, right? We're very community focused, you know? And so I think if you're a president of a small college, these are the things that are, you're thinking about constantly. How do we define ourselves? And then once we've come up with that definition, how do we then market that to these students who there's fewer and fewer of, and they have more and more choices? And, and of course, Pennsylvania, Michigan are in the Rust Belt, which is uh, also bleeding high school students. They're just not graduating uh, and the numbers are growing in the South and the West. So you've also got to have a reason for people to travel thousands of miles if, if to come to your campus as well. Might, would you agree? Yeah, yeah. So how do you get them to travel or how do you, how do you keep the students home, right? And so how do you keep, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain percentage of Michigan students that want to go to a small private school. So how do you make sure that you keep your percentage of that, of a shrinking pie, you know, high, high. And so you're getting the number of students that, that you want, but yeah, it comes down to how do you convince them to, to go, you know, for so long, it's been, they can try to convince people by, by dollars, right. By scholarships, by, by tuition discounts. You know, I was at a, I was at a school here in Michigan at Alma College, and I went on a tour with a with a prospective student. And so I, you know, we she walked in with her parents, and they sat down, and the admissions rep came out, and they're chatting about the school. And the rep says, "Oh, by the way, here's five hundred. You want a five hundred dollars scholarship just for showing up today?" Wow. And it was because they were recommended by by a friend who already was a student, right? So each student got 500 bucks and there was a scholarship for this, right? And so they're already starting to knock down that down that price. That runs into problems. You start knocking, you have a big enough tuition discount rate. You're not bringing in the money. Now you're, you got a whole nother set of problems. And we've, we've certainly seen that a lot here in these, in these small schools. But if so, the question is, how do you market students? How do you get, how do you convince students that, um, as one president told me, how do I convince prospective students that what I'm offering is worth paying for. Yeah, absolutely. And not just I'm coming because instead of paying $60,000 a year, I'm paying $10,000 a year. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really tough uh, needle to thread. There's no doubt about it. David, I hope people will read you in the Detroit Free Press, uh, follow you on Twitter. You have an enormous uh, range of interests that I think my audience would be interested in. And thank you again for coming back on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I am always happy to chat with you both on the podcast. And uh, thank you for your help on, uh, on stories. You are welcome.